Judges chapter 16 and uh, verse number 28. This is the end of the story. This is the end of the line for a man named Samson. He says, and uh, it's recorded of Samson in Judges 16, verse 28. Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand, of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. He bowed himself with all his might. The house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he, speaking of Samson, slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Then his brethren, the house of his father came down and took him, brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the burying place of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel 20 years. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, Lord, speak to our hearts. We need to hear from you. That's why we've come today. That's what all of this service has been aimed toward is seeing you and hearing from you today. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to effectively communicate those things which you've placed in my heart. Lord, I pray that the truth which I found would be lived out in my life and then the truth which is preached this morning would then have the same effect on the hearer, those that receive it. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. William Shakespeare said that um, tragedy is comedy misunderstood, but there is nothing funny about the account that is recorded in Judges chapter 16, in the previous chapters. Judges 13 begins with a familiar pattern. It says in verse 1, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. Now, 40 years is a long time to serve under the bondage and dominion of an iron fist. But for whatever reason, you know, God's sovereign. That's the way he chose. That's the way he designed for his people to be delivered. Judges 13, 2, it introduces us to a man named Manoah. His wife was unable to have children. One day the angel of the Lord visited Manoah's wife and told her that she would have a child. and she, uh, He gave her some very specific instructions. Look at uh, verses 3 through 5 in chapter 13 of Judges, where it says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, here's the instruction, Drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. 
Well, this would be quite a shocking thing, wouldn't it, if the angel of the Lord showed up and delivered such a message to one of us? And so Manoah's wife uh, told her husband about the encounter with the angel. And Manoah uh, prayed and asked God to send that messenger back. He wanted to hear from the messenger himself. And so the Word of God tells us that the Lord hearkened unto the prayer of Manoah, and the angel came a second time. Look at uh, verse number 8 of chapter 13. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, my, uh, o my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. God hearkened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And the woman made haste and ran and showed her husband and said unto him, Behold, the man that the, the man hath appeared unto me that came unto me the other day. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said unto him, Art thou the man that spaketh unto the woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child? How shall we do unto him? This child that was promised to Manoah and his wife was to be a Nazarite. Now, being a Nazarite was not necessarily an unusual thing. All through the scriptures, there were Nazarites. Matter of fact, in the law of Moses, you can write this down and look at it later, but in the law of Moses, there is an entire section of the legislation that pertains to the Nazarite. It's found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. It was all the observances that the Nazarite had to keep. The Nazarite, though, because here's what we have to get to, ladies and gentlemen, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. We have got to get to a point when we look at the Word of God that we that we understand that it is the Word of God. And that it is a complete revelation of God Himself to mankind. And when we look at the Word of God, we need to ask ourselves, why does God reveal this thought to me? Why does God reveal Himself to me in this way? And understand what it is about the accounts we find in the Word of God and how they relate uh, to to that to answer that question and answering that question. The Nazarite is one example that we find in the Word of God of being separated unto God. And as it seems as long as God had a separated people in the world, he seems to have stayed his hand of judgment. But get this when when God's people began to mingle and identify themselves with the world, what followed? Judgment. Judgment always followed when God's people began to mingle and identify themselves with the world. Judgment always fell. For example, I'll give you one illustration. In the book of Genesis, it states that it came to pass, Genesis 6, when men, men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. Now, the first thing that people normally grab onto when Genesis chapter 6, verses 
uh, 2 and 3 I read, is this thing of who are the sons of God and the daughters of men. So I'm going to address that for just a moment and put it in its place, I hope, very quickly. There are three basic theories regarding the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. And all three arguments have flaws and weaknesses. And I'm not even going to tell you what the arguments are because they're every, all three of them are flawed. And all three of them have weaknesses. And here's the only real truth in the matter is that the Word of God does not identify who they are. And this is one of those situations where I think that the argument muddies the water of what is God actually trying to communicate by sharing that thought with us. The real point of Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, and it's missed because of superfluous argument, is that 120 years after the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. All living flesh of the earth, except for Noah and his family, were destroyed by a worldwide flood. That's, that's the point. That's the real point of Genesis 6, 2 and 3. It's not to identify who the sons of God and who the daughters of men were. That's a superfluous argument. Unnecessary. Because it, it clouds the, the, the thought that I believe God is trying to communicate there. Now, Here's the truth that we find in, that, in those two verses. The, the harvest for sin is always reaped in a different season than it is sown, right? I preached a message um, about Ahab and Jezebel. It took three years for the judgment that came against Ahab to be fulfilled. It took 20 years uh, for the judgment that came against Jezebel to be fulfilled. So it may take... 120 seconds, might take 120 minutes, might take 120 hours, might take 120 days, might take 120 weeks, might take 120 months, or might take 120 years. But when God separated people, begin to mingle and identify themselves with the world, judgment is going to follow. That seed, which is sown, is reaped in a different season. It's going to happen. I think there's few... Th things more devastating in this world and in this life than to see God's people mix with the world. One would think, one would think that the righteous would lift up the ungodly and that the whole world would become godly, but that's not the case, is it? That's not reality, is it? I mean, we've been trying to fight that battle for a long time, but it's never happened. It doesn't ever happen. It actually goes against the depravity of human nature, and it's based on the premise that all people are basically good. And I'm not, this is not my word, this is God's word, but God's word teaches us that all people are not basically good. It teaches us that the nature, the sinful human nature is deceitful above all things, and matter of fact, the Bible goes so far as to say it's desperately wicked. We're all basically desperately wicked, and it even goes so far in Jeremiah chapter 79 to say, who can know it? We don't even know the depths of the wickedness that we could plunge to if left on our own, right? It's a scary thought. You know, we have just uh, seen in the news recently a, a case for a man who seemed to have it all has been convicted by a jury saying that he murdered his own family. Have you seen that on the news? 
And the manner in which he did it was oh, horrific. He had everything. But he's living a, a double lifestyle and tried to cover it up and tried to cover it up by murdering his, his wife and his own son. And we uh, might look at that and say, I would never do something like that. Ah, be careful. We don't know the depths of despair and, and depravity that our, our hearts are prone to. It comes to those things. Here's what really ends up happening in the world. What really ends up happening is that the ungodly, when God's people, when God's separated people mix with the world, the ungodly pull down the righteous. That's really what happens. Matter of fact, I, don't, I know I've mentioned this before. It's a, it's a spiritual phenomena which was observed and documented by a French sociologist by the name of Emile Durkheim in the early part of the 20th century. It even has a name. It's called the Durkheim Constant. And the idea of it is that there's a, there's a constant degradation in society. And something that is normally accepted, that is morally correct, as time goes on, that morality is marginalized, first of all, then maligned altogether, and a new standard comes into play. And I want you to think about over the course of your lifetime what has taken place in our nation. That things that once were called good and righteous and wholesome, now people who try to maintain those things, sometimes they're even mocked for being conservative, aren't they? You know what that is? That's Emil Durkheim's Durkheim constant. And it keeps going. There's a constant rate of degrad degradation in society. And this is what he observed. And really it's not a societal problem. It's a spiritual problem. And, and here's another thing. It's not even really a new concept because really that plays into the second law of thermodynamics, doesn't it? That the whole universe is in a constant state of decay. Right? And so that's, those things help to support this idea that what really happens in real life, when one would think that the righteous mixing with the ungodly would cause the whole world to become godly, that doesn't happen in reality. Because of the depravity of human nature, what really ends up happening is that the ungodly pull down the righteous. And now this thing, which used to be wholesome and right and, and good, is even maligned by those who are conservative. They look at it and say, oh, that's crazy, that's old-fashioned. You know, and we see this going on. And, and what happens in Christianity is we always keep this constant distance from the world, don't we? And as the world degrades and degrades and degrades, what has happened to Christianity? It's degraded. God's people have degraded and degraded and degraded. I'm telling you, this is how it really happens. I observe people that are Christians and faithfully go to church doing things that only lost people did 20 years ago. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Think about it. I've observed it in my life. 
my lifetime. I've told you the story. No, I'm not going to tell it again. I'm just telling its truth. Things that only lost people did 20 and 30 years ago, Christians do openly and without shame now. What is that? It's a spiritual phenomenon called the Durkheim constant, or if you want, the second law of thermodynamics, this thing of entropy. God's people are not to mix and mingle with the world. Christians, get this, and I know this might be tough to swallow, but you know Christians are not here to make the world a better place. You know that? Now is the world a better place because Christians are here? You better believe it should be. Right? Our presence ought to, ought to bring about some good. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? If we do what God told us to do on this earth, does it not bring about some good? If we tell some poor lost sinner how to have faith in Christ and be saved and have a relationship with God and spend eternity in His presence, well, that, that changes things for that person. Doesn't that, doesn't that bring some good into their life? Right? Doesn't the Lord Jesus instruct that we're to feed the hungry? Right? We're to take care of uh, the fatherless and the widows and their affliction? You know what James said? There was pure religion? Absolutely, but I'm telling you, my friends, Christians are not here on this earth to make the world a better place. The world should be a better place because Christians are in it, but Christians are not here for that purpose. As a matter of fact, we find in 2 Timothy 3.13 that as time marches on, the world doesn't get better and better. It gets worse and worse. Here's another thing about that. Not even Jesus came for the purpose of making the world a better place. He did not come to give people good long lives or avoid short bad ones. He didn't come to establish religion or a kingdom or heaven on earth. The Lord Jesus Christ came to restore a broken relationship between God and man. That's why He came. He said Himself, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And now, Christ, having bodily resurrected from the dead and ascended to be seated, at the right hand of the throne of God, commissioned and ordained the local assembly, the church, to accomplish that work. That's why we're here. The seeking and the saving of the lost in his bodily absence. And that's one of the reasons it's so important uh, that the Christian is not married to the world, but unto the Lord. I'd like for you to take the word of God and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We've got a job to do. We've got a a task to fulfill. And we can't do it mingling with the world. Being married to the world. We need to be married to Christ. Separated unto Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse number 14, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath Light with darkness. What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. It was Wednesday night's message, wasn't it? 
You're the temple of the living God. Why would you defile that? Why would you mark that up like the world does? Why would you feed it and, and give it drink like the world does? As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I'll receive you. Well, that's some heavy scripture, isn't it? The promised child of Manoah and his wife was to be separated unto God. And the tragedy of this account will be found in the departure from God's plan. And it ends, like we read just a moment ago, in sorrow and in heartache. It always does when there's a departure from God's plan. Despite the sad ending, we find glimpses of light, bits of sunshine in this account. Let's look at it. Back to the book of Judges. Little bits of sunshine along the way. Look at chapter 13, verse 24. It tells us the woman bare a son and calls its name Samson. Samson's name is built on a Hebrew word for the sun. I don't know if you're familiar with the preacher Bible commentary guy, John Phillips. I, th I think the Knopfs knew him personally. John Phillips. Anything you can get by John Phillips, you ought to read it. John Phillips preached the message on Samson, and the title of the message was called Mr. Sunshine. That's what his name means. So, throughout this account, every once in a while, we see these little, little glimpses of light. Another, another way we see this, we find this little sentence, or these little sentences, the Spirit of the Lord began to move him, speaking of Samson, or the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Look at verse 25 of chapter 13. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times. Chapter 14 and verse number 6, another little, little ray of light. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Uh, chapter 15 and verse number 14. When he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. So we see these little things. These are fine illustrations, by the way, of, of where we're going with all of this. How that the Spirit of the Lord began to move him, or the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. These are fine illustrations of the difference between the days of the Old Testament and the days of the New Testament. The days of the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came intermittently. You understand what that means? came intermittently. The Spirit of God came intermittently. He came and He left. He came and He left. Right? We find that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon Saul. Saul wasn't a good guy all the days of his life. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon a, a fellow named Jehu in 2 Kings when, when uh, he was called upon at a certain strategic moment in the life of his people. Elijah requested, or Elisha rather, requested this, and we find it in 2 Kings chapter 3, a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. But we find something shifts in the prophecy of the minor prophet Joel. The Word of God says it, 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 it shall come to pass afterward that 
I will pour out my spirit upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my spirit. And so a different thing was going to happen. Something was prophesied that at some point in the history of man, the spirit of God would no longer be intermittent, but would reside in the hearts of men. And on the day of Pentecost, the great new era, an age of dispensation of the fullness of the spirit began. The intersection of God's spirit with man's spirit ceased to be intermittent and limited. Now, anytime, anywhere, anyone can have as much of the Holy Spirit of God as his heart will be open to receive, as he by faith is willing to yield. And the supply of the Holy Spirit is not limited like it was in the Old Testament. Speaking of Christ, it says, For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto Christ. There's no limit to it. There's no limit in Christ's ability uh, to, uh, to give it to others. So anyone by faith can receive Christ, can receive the Spirit. And the Bible tells us we should, we'd better. Romans 8, 9 says, If any may have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. We'd better have the Spirit, right? Be able to identify with God. Further in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, the believer is commanded to be filled with the Spirit. You know that one? Ephesians 5.18. That's not about how much of the Spirit the believer has, but how much the Spirit has of the believer, has of us. It's about the believer's surrender to Him. Here's an interesting thought. And you might need to chew on this a little bit. Maybe not. Maybe you're already there. Maybe you figured this out. You probably have. I'm just a little bit behind sometimes. Maybe it's me, right? But you know, we never get more and we never get less of the Spirit of God when we get saved. You don't get more. You don't get less. You have the fullness of it. I want you to consider this, and this is what you might have to chew on and think about a little bit. You believe that the Spirit of God, when a person trusts in Christ alone as their only hope of relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity, do you believe that the Spirit of God indwells the believer permanently? I do. I mean, Romans 8, 8, uh, 8 9, was it? If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he has none of his. Right? So it's one indicator that tells us when a person trusts Christ alone, they get the indwelling Spirit of God in them. Never to leave. You don't get more, you don't get less. You get what you get, and it's the fullness of the Spirit. When you get saved, when you trust Christ as Savior. He's promised never to leave us, nor to forsake us. Do you believe that? Is that what He said? For He hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. The, the thing that I think is being taught there in Hebrews is that, look, we can be content. Because if all we can say is that Christ has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that's pretty good. So here's the thing. What that implies, that belief that the indwelling Spirit of God comes into the life of a person who trusts in Christ alone, never to depart, that means when that believer sins, because we learned last Sunday morning that believers do sin, right? <laughs> When that believer sins, do you know the Spirit of God is still there? I think we get this idea sometime 
of more an Old Testament style of Holy Spirit that is more intermittent. And if I'm sinning, the Holy Spirit is not with me. But if I'm walking in the light, then the Holy Spirit of God is in me. My friend, He's there all the time. And what that implies is this, that when I sin, I'm not doing it away from Him, I'm doing it right in front of Him. When I'm looking at that thing or handling that thing or doing that thing or going that place or having that thought, it's not like I'm doing it apart from the Spirit of God in me. I'm doing it with the Spirit of God in me. With Him looking right over my shoulder and going, Really? I'm right here. You're going to do that? You're going to say that? You're going to think that? I'm right here. Hello? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. That's not a, a verse for unbelievers. That's a verse for believers, the church at Laodicea, who maybe had the same idea that the Spirit of God was some intermittent thing. And since we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, we don't really need the Spirit of God right now. All the time the Spirit of Christ is outside going, um, you know I'm still here, right? my understanding was open about that truth, man, it made my sin look a whole lot worse than, than, than I thought it was. Today, we can have God's Spirit incessantly in full measure, no more, no less, never to be removed. You know what the, the Word of God calls the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1.14? In so many words, and I'll tell you what it really calls him in just a minute, but in so many words, he is the security deposit of the promise that God has said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Ephesians 1.14 calls him the earnest of our inheritance. You ever bought a house? When you made an offer, what did you have to do? Put down some earnest money. You know what that earnest money is for? That's a that's a gesture of good faith that you're not going to back out of the deal. Oh, thank you, Lord. That I've got the indwelling Spirit of God in me to, to verify, to give me comfort and peace that what God has said, He'll deliver on. He's not going to back out of the deal. Oh, oh man. Earnest of our inheritance. Goes on in Ephesians to say, it's because of that we're sealed. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Well, it's yet to be delivered, right? <laughs> it's coming. But God gave us that earnest of our inheritance name. And his name is the Holy Spirit. Co equal, co eternal with God. God in us. My life is hid with Christ in God. It's the Spirit of Christ. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Huh. I'm standing up here and I'm just, oh. You know, <laughs> I'm having a spiritual fit in my heart knowing this. Understanding this truth. Ha. Huh. Man. 
Sometimes the preaching's not just for you. I get something too. So how does one receive the Spirit of God? Well, by trusting in Christ alone is the only hope of relationship with God and home in His presence for eternity. There's no other way. We're going to look at some of those. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I'll tell you now. We're going, to, we're going to look at another aspect of this tonight. And so we're going to look at an illustration of somebody who tried to get the Spirit another way. What God had to say about it. But you know, from every one of us, every human being that, that, that is born into this world, inherited a spiritual birth defect from the first parents, Adam and Eve. We are sinners by nature. It's in our spiritual DNA. We're sinners by nature. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. And in case you're wondering, yes, God placed the responsibility for, for that on the man's shoulders. Even though it was Eve, she was deceived. Adam made a conscious decision. Both of them are accountable to God because God is just and He can't sweep anybody's sin under the rug for any reason. Not even ignorance. But God, God had an order. And He placed the responsibility of the fall of man on the man's shoulders. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin so death passed upon all men. What happened? We inherited a spiritual birth defect from Adam and Eve because of their sin. Because they changed, they marred the image of man. We talked about that last Sunday morning. If you have any questions about that, go back to that message. Look at it. It's stored in the archives, I think. If not, come ask me some questions. But we're not just sinners by nature because a lot of times what we like to do as human beings, as part of our part of our nature, is we like to we like to accuse and excuse. Yeah, but you ever have kids deal with kids? Why did you do that? Well, so and so, you know, it's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Do you know that? God came to them in the cool of the day, and it's not like God didn't know where they were, but they hid from God. God said, "Where were you?" He said, "Well, we knew we." We, we knew we were naked, so we hid from you. God said, well, how would you know you're naked? And then the truth starts coming out, except for the excuses that Adam gave. He said, well, the woman, that's exactly what he said. What a man. Throw your wife under the bus. Well, the woman you gave me, she gave me that tree that you said we're not supposed to eat. So God turns to Eve. This isn't how it happened, I'm sure. I'm just making up my own version. God turns to Eve and he said, Eve, she said the snake. It's in our DNA, it's in our spiritual DNA, our nature, that when confronted with these things, what do we do? Yeah, but the woman, the snake. <laughs> and the snake, well, whatever. You know, the adversary. But we inherited it. We're sinners by nature, but lest we start exercising those accusations and excuses, we 
are also sinners by practice. Romans 5.12, the last phrase says, for all have sinned. That's really the point. We can, we can debate about, you know, what about this and what about that and the what ifs that are involved with all of this. But, but here's where it needs to come back to is it needs to land right squarely back in our shoulders, in our laps. Yeah, but have you sinned? And the answer is, we all have. From birth, our ability to walk with God and worship Him is dead. That's what that means. That's, that's the spiritual birth defect. The spirit of man, when he's born, is dead. Spirit is that thing which allows a person to walk with God and worship God. We're spiritually stillborn, I heard somebody say one time, when we're born. It's hard to believe you look at little babies. I was looking at my grandson yesterday. Man, they're so helpless. But they're sinners. Aren't they? If we believe what we say we believe, that's why they need to be born again. You might find this strange, but as it, maybe not, because it's coming from me. So, whenever I met my children for the first time, I picked them up in my arms and I whispered in their ear, must be born again. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. From birth a person is stillborn. But when a person believes and receives Christ, their dead spirit is made alive. It's resurrected in glorified form. It's born again, not improved, new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. All things are become what? New. New. Not improved. New. You hath he quickened, Ephesians 2, 1 says, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in your ability to walk with God. You were dead in your ability to worship God. And when Christ's Spirit indwells you, it quickens you and makes that Spirit alive makes it new. In addition, when a person believes and receives Christ, the full measure of the Spirit of God permanently indwells them and allows them the opportunity to walk with God and to worship Him. That's why Romans 8.16 says, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's how that works. So, how does one receive the Spirit of God? By trusting in Christ alone as their only hope of relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity. Now, I think we need to be very careful. I'm going to end it here right now. I think we need to be very careful that we do not come seeking the Spirit of God, but seeking God Himself. Again, we're going to talk about a man tonight that saw something that he tried, he tried to buy it. God said to him, your heart is not right. So when we talk about this thing of receiving the Spirit of God, what we're, what we're looking at is, is something that needs to be handled with care. What you're looking at not, is, is not the byproduct. It's receiving the Spirit of God is a byproduct of having, having a relationship with God. That's the thing that you ought to come seeking this morning if you haven't done that already.
is having that relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in Christ alone as your only hope of relationship with God. Maybe you're here this morning, you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. I certainly hope that's the case. That would be wonderful if everybody in this room had the ability to walk and worship God, walk with God and worship God. But I don't want to take anything for granted. Whether you're listening on Facebook Live or the dial-up, the telephone number, or you're in the building, I want to give you that invitation. Why don't you trust in Christ alone? And you'll get that byproduct, the, the comfort that the Holy Spirit can bring. The confidence to be able to say, I have somebody in my life that will never leave me nor forsake me. Do you know lost people can't say that? Well, I'm not saying they don't have devoted friend, family and friends. I'm not saying they don't have strong relationships. But a lost person cannot say, I have somebody in my life who really can support this, can follow through on it. I have somebody in my life who will never leave me nor forsake me. Lost people can't say that. They're without hope. They're condemned. They need Christ. It's about eyes are closing. Hymn of invitation is going to be played. I want to extend that invitation to the believer to pray. You know, however it is the Lord has, has led you this morning. I, I think there's going to be more to consider tonight for the believer. And perhaps this morning, really, this morning's message, the invitation at least applies to the unbeliever one that is not yet trusted in Christ. But this morning, how did God speak to you? Maybe it's a, a greater understanding. Maybe you would ask the Lord, Lord, show me, open my understanding further about this matter. Maybe it's a matter of, of God has revealed to you. I, there's no way for any of anyone else to know, but God's revealed to you. It's a, there's a matter of surrender in your life, some area of surrender that he's desiring access to that. Would you give it to him? Maybe as I described how it is for the believer, how that the Spirit of God is there even when we sin. Maybe God revealed something to you. You make that right with Him. you got an opportunity to do that now. <clears throat>